welcome to the podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac, and I'm very excited to be recording this second of the special Halloween episodes. This is essentially part two of the cool diseases and illnesses related to Halloween. I am your host, Sarah, and I'm recording by myself again this evening. As I mentioned earlier in the episode recorded for part one, My partners in crime have been extremely busy with school and families and all kinds of other stuff, so I am recording this on my own. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this podcast, it is the podcast for all of you out there who secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge, or a headache. It's not a tumor. We understand. We identify We scope out WebMD anytime we have a slight twinge, just like you guys. And we are here to talk about weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. But before we get started, we need to talk about our disclaimers. I realize you guys get sick of hearing them, but we have to talk about them legally speaking. First and foremost, we are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals of any kind, Please, please, please do not take what we say on this show as medical advice. We are not trying to treat, diagnose, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see a doctor. Don't guess or take what we say as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun and weird parts of the medical world, past, present, and future. Let's jump right in. So, for this super fun Halloween episode, we are going to talk about werewolves. And real-life Frankenstein. How real-life science inspired Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, published 200 years ago, is often called the first modern work of science fiction. It also became a fixture of pop culture, so much so that even people who haven't read it know it, and they know the story. In this particular book, an ambitious young scientist named Victor Frankenstein, creates a grotesque but vaguely human creature from the spare parts of a corpse. But he then loses control of his creation and chaos ensues. It's a wildly inventive tale, one that flowed from an exceptional young woman's imagination, and at the same time, it reflected the anxieties over new ideas and new scientific knowledge that were about to transform the very fabric of life in the 19th century. And I feel like these particular types of articles about Frankenstein and Frankenstein experiments are particularly interesting in light of the discussions that we've already had about body transplants, face transplants, head transplants, and all of that sort of thing. I know that the scientific community has been experimenting extensively with these things in order to help people who have gone through some very traumatic accidents regain the use of limbs, have a life again, and be able to live as normally as possible. But all of this began nearly 200 years ago, when Mary Shelley created this novel. Mary Shelley herself was born Mary Wollstonecraft Goodwin, the daughter of a political philosopher and feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, who tragically died shortly after Mary's birth. Hers was a hyper-literate household attuned to the latest scientific quest, and her parents hosted many intellectual visitors. One was a scientist and inventor named William Nicholson who wrote extensively on chemistry and on the scientific method. 
Another was the polymath Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of Charles Darwin. At just 16 years old, Mary ran off with poet and philosopher Percy Bythes Shelley, who was married at the time. A Cambridge graduate, Percy was a keen amateur scientist who studied the properties of gases and the chemical makeup of food. He was particularly interested in electricity, even performing an experiment reminiscent of Benjamin Franklin's Franklin's famous kite test. The genesis of Frankenstein can be traced back to 1816 when the couple spent the summer at a country house on Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Lord Byron, the famous poet, was in a villa nearby, accompanied by a young doctor friend, John Polidori. The weather was pretty miserable that summer. We now know the cause. In 1815, Mount Tambora in Indonesia erupted, spewing dust and smoke into the air, which then circulated around the world, blotting out the sun for weeks on end and also triggering widespread crop failure. 1816 became known as the year without a summer for that exact reason. In any case, Mary and her companions, including her infant son, William, and her stepsister, Claire Claremont, were were forced to spend their time indoors, huddled around the fireplace, reading and telling stories, which was essentially what they did back then because we didn't have radios, we didn't have TVs. So books, stories, and that sort of thing were essential to the entertainment of the masses. As storm after storm raged on outside, Byron proposed they each write a ghost story. A few of them tried. Today, Mary's story is the only one out of these that we remember. Frankenstein is, of course, a work of fiction, but a good deal of real-life science informed Shelley's masterpiece, Being Getting with the Adventure story that frames Victor Frankenstein's tale. And that is the story of Captain Walton's voyage to the Arctic. Walton hoped to reach the North Pole, a goal that no one would achieve in real life for almost another century, where he might discover the wondrous power that attracts the needle, referring to the then mysterious force of magnetism. The magnetic compass was a vital tool for navigation, and it was understood that the Earth itself was somehow functioning like a magnet. However, no one could say how and why compasses worked and why the magnetic poles differed from the geographical poles. It's not surprising that Shelley would have incorporated this quest into her story. The links between electricity and magnetism were a major subject of investigation during Mary's lifetime, and a number of expeditions departed from the North and South Poles in the hopes of discovering the secrets of the planet's magnetic field. Victor recounts to Walton that as a student at the University of Ingolstadt, which still exists today, he was drawn to chemistry, but one of his instructors, the worldly and affable Professor Waldman, encouraged him to leave no branch of science unexplored. Today, scientists are highly specialized, but a scientist in Shelley's time would have had a very broad scope. Waldman advises Victor, a man would make but a very sorry chemist if he attended to that department of human knowledge alone. If you wish, if your wish is to become a real man of science and not merely a petty experimentalist, I would advise you to apply to every branch of natural philosophy, including mathematics. But the topic that commands Victor's attention 
is the nature of life itself. The structure of the human frame and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence, I often ask myself, did the principle of life proceed? This is a problem that science was on the brink of solving, Victor says, if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries. In the era that Shelley wrote these words, the subject of what exactly differentiates living things from innate matter was the focus of very impassioned debate. John Abernathy, a professor at London's Royal College of Surgeons, argued for a, a materialist account of life, while his pupil, William Lawrence, was a proponent of vitalism, a kind of life force or invisible substance analogous to the one hand, on one hand to the soul and on the other to electricity. Other key thinkers at the time, including chemist Sir Humphrey Davy, proposed this life force in a way where they imagined as life as a chemical force similar to heat or electricity. Davy's public lectures at the Royal Institution in London were a popular entertainment for many, and the young Shelley attended these lectures with her father. Davy remained influential. In October 1816, when she was writing Frankenstein's Almost Daily, Shelley noted in her diary she was simultaneously reading Davy's Elements of Chemical Philosophy. So that played a big part in her writing. Davy also believed in the power of science to improve the human condition, a power that only had to be tapped. Victor Frankenstein echoes these sentiments. Scientists have indeed performed miracles, he says. They penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates and the nature of the air we breathe. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. In Shelley's novel, Victor then pledges to probe even further to discover new knowledge, claiming that he will pioneer new ways to explore unknown powers and unfold to the world the deepest mysteries of creation. From evolution to electricity. Closely related to the problem of life was the question of spontaneous generation, the alleged sudden appearance of life from non-living matter. Erasmus Darwin was a key figure in the study of spontaneous generation. Like his grandson Charles, he wrote about evolution, suggesting that all life descended from a single origin. Erasmus is the only real-life scientist to be mentioned by name in Shelley's novel. There she claims that Darwin preserved a piece of vermicelli in a glass case till by some extraordinary means it began to move with an involuntary motion. She adds, perhaps a corpse could be reanimated. Galvanism has given token of such things. Perhaps the component parts of a creature might be manufactured, brought together, and endured with vital warmth. Her scientist, Victor, then pursues his quest for the spark of life with unrelenting zeal. First, he became acquainted with the science of anatomy, but this was not sufficient. He then went on to also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body, where he eventually succeeded in discovering the cause of the generation of life. To her credit, Shelley didn't really attempt to explain what the secret of life is. She kind of left that to the reader's imagination, but it's clear that it involves a new science of electricity, and she implies this in her novel. In Shelley's time, scientists were just beginning to learn how to store and make use of electrical energy. In Italy, in 1799, Alessandro Volta had developed the electric pile, an early kind of battery. 
A little earlier in, 18, in the 1780s, Luigi Galvani claimed to have been discovered to have discovered a new form of electricity based on his experiments with animals. Famously, he was able to make a dead frog's legs twitch by passing an electrical current through it. Then there was Giovanni Aldini, a nephew of Galvani, who experimented with who experimented with the body of a hanged criminal in London in 1803. This was a long time before people routinely donated their bodies to science, so deceased criminals were a prime source of research for scientists. In Shelley's novel, her scientist Victor goes one step further, sneaking into cemeteries to experiment on corpses, which I do not believe was an uncommon thing back then. A churchyard, she says, was merely to be the receptacle of bodies deprived of life. Now I was led to examine the cause and progress of this display and forced to spend days and nights in vaults and charnel houses. Electrical experimentation wasn't just for the dead. In London, electrical therapies were all the rage. People with various ailments sought them out, and some were allegedly even cured by the use of electrical therapies. So the idea that dead people would come back to life through some part of electrical manipulation struck a lot of people in that time period as very plausible and worthy of scientific investigation. Quite a few scientists in that day... so. In Shelley's time, Victor Frankenstein came to be seen as the quintessential mad scientist, the first example of what would become a common Hollywood trope. Victor was so absorbed by his laboratory travails that he failed to see the repercussions of his work. When he realized what he had unleashed on the world, he was overcome with remorse. And this was sort of a viewpoint that people started to follow during that time period as well. And yet scholars who study Shelley don't interpret this remorse as evidence of Shelley's feelings about science on the whole. We should remember that the creature in Shelley's novel is at first a gentle and amicable being who enjoyed reading Paradise Lost and philosophizing on his place in the cosmos. It is the ill treatment he receives in the hands of fellow citizens that changes his disposition. At every turn, they recoil from him in horror, and he is forced to live the life of an outcast. It is only then, in response to this cruelty, that his killing spree begins. But... Victor does not act to ease the creature's suffering. Though he briefly returns to his laboratory to build a female companion for the creature, he soon changes his mind and destroys the second being, fearing that a race of devils would be propagated upon the earth. He vows then to hunt and kill his creation, pursuing the creature until he or I shall both perish in mortal conflict." Victor Frankenstein's failing, one might argue, wasn't his overzealousness for science or his desire to play God. Rather, he falters in failing to empathize with the creature he created. The problem, say many, was not in his head, but in his heart. Very, very interesting, interesting indeed. On a similar note, I have another article called... Four Real Frankenstein Experiments and the Mad Scientists Behind Them. This article is on allthatsinteresting.com and was written by Richard Stockton. It came out in January 2018. In 1818, a 20-year-old woman named Mary Shelley anonymously published her first novel titled Frankenstein, 
or Frankenstein, depending on how you want to say it, or the modern Prometheus, the book that told the story of proverbial mad scientist who reanimated a corpse and created a monster. Although Shelley very carefully omitted any exposition in her book of how exactly Dr. Frankenstein brought his cadaver back to life, modern interpretations of the novel almost always have the lightning bolt zapping the creature back to life. This now cliche tableau may not exactly be what Shelley had in mind when she wrote the book, but it's actually not far off from the manner that actual scientists of the time were doing of what they were doing in their labs. For decades before and after the book's publication, several prominent scientists were putting serious brain power into the job of reanimating corpses in real-life Frankenstein experiments by using the then-magic power of electricity. Luigi Galvani, and I mentioned that in the early article, he was one such scientist that was doing that. He was bringing dead things to life with the power of electricity. Decades before, in 1870... Luigi Galvani had noticed an effect that would set him on the path of the sort of grisly experiments that would have inspired Frankenstein. In that year, Galvani was a lecturer at the University of Bologna. Scientists in the late 18th century weren't necessarily specialists, and Galvani was interested in everything. All at once, he was a chemist, a physicist, an anatomist, a physician, and a philosopher, and he seems to have excelled at pretty much all of these. By 1780, he had already become the chair of obstetrics department for over a dozen years and had done extensive work on animal hearing and sight. When that line of research got stale, he turned his attention to frog's legs. According to the legend that later developed around his work, Galvani was slowly skinning the severed lower half of a frog when his assistant's scalpel touched a bronze hook in the frog's flesh. All at once, the leg twitched as if it was trying to hop away, and this gave Galvani ideas. He then published his results in 1780, along with his theory about what was going on. In his model, dead muscles contained some vital fluids he called animal electricity. This, he argued, was related to, but functionally distinct from, the kind of electricity in lightning or the shock you would get after walking across a carpet. He thought that the electrical contact animated whatever residual animal electric fluid remained in the legs. This sparked a respectful argument about confirmation of his experiment's results. There are some people that agreed, but many people that did not. A shock was a shock, they argued, and that it didn't really particularly matter what kind of electricity... This sparked a respectful argument with Alessandro Volta, who first confirmed Galvani's experimental results, but then disagreed with him that there was anything special about animals and their electricity. A shock was a shock, he argued, and then he invented a reasonably efficient electric battery to prove it. By 1782, Volta was shocking all sorts of dead things himself to prove that any sort of electricity could do the trick. Giovanni Aldini, again, another scientist that we spoke about in the last article, is the next one on this list. And by the time Volta was building his first voltonic piles, Galvani was too old to start a flame war over his own theory. Instead, he began defending his ideas to Giovanni Aldini. And that's where things get a little bit sketchy here. On January 18th, 1803, a man named George Forster was hanged by the neck in London. 
the court found him guilty of drowning his wife and a child in a canal. Forster dropped and died quickly, and his body was delivered to the workshop of Giovanni Aldini, who moved to the Newgate neighborhood specifically to be close to the hangings that took place there. Quickly, Aldini summoned an audience of medical students and curious onlookers and began to work on the corpse. First, he moved the limbs and may have struck the face to demonstrate that Forster was truly dead. Then he soaped the dead man's ears with salt water and stuck sponges in them to conduct electricity. Finally, he applied electrodes to each ear and passed a current through the dead man's head. In the words of a horrified reporter who witnessed the demonstration, quote, On the first application of the process to the face, the jaws of the deceased criminal began to quiver and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted and one eye was actually opened. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched and the legs and thighs were set in motion. To anybody watching, it must have seemed that Aldini was raising the murderer from the dead. This was particularly disturbing for so many people during that time period. Questions were even asked in government circles about what the law would require if Forster actually had come back to life. And the consensus view was that he should have to be hung a second time. Crazy. Aldini's real Frankenstein experiments had become the toast of London and his uncle's ideas about animal electricity were starting to look pretty damn credible. Andrew Ure was the next person on this list, and around the time that Aldini was experimenting with his electrocuted criminals in London, a young Scottish scientist and scriptural geologist, God knows what that is, named Andrew Ure, was getting his degree in Glasgow. Ure was another one of those generalized geniuses who was interested in, interested in just about everything. His encyclopedic book about industrial processes was written in the 1830s and is said to have needed 19 expert translators to render it properly into French. Fresh out of university and looking for something to study, Ur found Aldini's work fascinating and decided to try it out for himself. By 1818, Uri had his own steady supply of freshly hanged criminals to play around with. There was no shortage of executions in Britain then, since about 300 crimes carried the death penalty, and so Yuri was kept busy. Unlike medical professionals of today, Yuri liked to have a crowd watching his procedures, which were not experiments so much as they were public freak shows that helped him build a reputation as a scientific wizard. Like Aldini, he specialized in shocking various parts of the body to make them move. Also, as had been the case with Aldini, the scientific validity of this was questionable, as he didn't seem to be answering, answering any specific questions about his work. Apparently, it looked pretty cool, though. According to one observer, every muscle of the body was immediately agitated with convulsive movements resembling a violent shuddering from cold. On moving the second rod from hip to heel, the knee began, the knee being previously bent, the leg was thrown out with such violence as nearly to overturn one of the assistants who in vain tried to prevent its extension. The body was also made to perform the movements of breathing by stimulating the ferric nerve and the diaphragm. When the supraorbital nerve was excited, every muscle in his countenance was simultaneously thrown into fearful action. Rage, horror, despair, anguish, and ghastly smiles united their hideous expressions in the murderer's face, surpassing far the wildest representations of Fuseli or Keen, 
At this period, several of the spectators were forced to leave the apartment for terror or sickness, and one gentleman even fainted. Yuri eventually ran out of steam for his real Frankenstein experiments, and local churches were agitating to shut him down by force if he didn't stop summoning devils in his lab. Because back then, they didn't really understand a lot of the scientific processes, or really particularly the masses didn't understand electricity. So to them, it was a spiritual thing, and it began to be quite frightening, as though devils were being summoned. But in this time period, Yuri gave up the reanimation efforts, correctly concluding it was a waste of time, and then returned his attention to more productive pursuits like revolutionizing the way volumes are measured and developing a working thermostat. 20th century attempts. The work of early Galvinists was largely set aside after the 1820s. Even Yuri seems to have abandoned his work early his early work in favor of temperature regulation and Bible prophecy. The Soviet Union, however, evidently didn't feel the same constraints when it came to the subject of mad science. By the early 1920s, even before the Russian Civil War had ended with a Bolshevik victory, a Russian scientist was back at it, except this time he was actually getting results. One scientist named Sergei Bryhonikov Forgive me for mispronouncing that. That is a very, very hard name. This gentleman was a scientist living in Russian, Russia during the revolution who invented what he called an autojector or a heart-lung machine. These exist today, and this particular man's design was fundamentally sound, but it's the way he tested it that's super creepy. During his early experiments, Brunhonko decapitated a dog and immediately connected it to his machine. The machine drew blood from the veins and circulated it through a filter for oxygenation. According to his paper, Sergei kept the dog's severed head alive and responsive for over an hour and a half before clots started to build up and killed the dog on the table. These experiments were documented in the 1940s film Experiments in the Revival of Organisms, and showcase me- which showcased many of this man's experiments. This wasn't strictly reanimation, though, but Sergei's stated purpose was eventually to learn how to totally reanimate fallen Soviet men on behalf of the state. According to the sometimes reliable Soviet Congress of Science, Sergei actually managed it in 1930. Given the hours, dead man of a corpse who committed suicide, the team plugged his body up to the autojector and pushed a witch's brew of odd chemicals into his bloodstream. The man's chest cavity was open and the team allegedly got his heart started again. The story goes that they got as far as developing a steady heart rhythm when the man started groaning like a real Frankenstein. At this point, everyone got seriously freaked out and shut down the experiment, letting the man die for good. All things considered, this probably for the best. Really interesting stuff. Clearly, science has progressed much over the last few years, but nonetheless, it's very, very interesting. And then the next article that we're going to speak about is real-life Halloween conditions. I found this article on medicaldaily.com. 
and it's called Werewolf Syndrome, Vampire's Disease, and Walking Corpse Syndrome, Real Medical Conditions with a Halloween Connection. This article is by Dana Dovey. While we know that creatures such as werewolves, vampires, and zombies aren't real, you may be surprised to learn that many of these supernatural beings bear names similar to real medical conditions. Let's explore some of these horrifying medical oddities that have names with a Halloween connection. The first one on this list is werewolf syndrome. Congenital hypertrichosis, sometimes known as werewolf syndrome, is a rare genetic disease which causes the growth of excessive body and facial hair. According to a 2015 paper on the syndrome, congenital hypertrichosis is more rare than acquired hypertrichosis, which can often occur as a result of a hormone problem or side effect of drug use. The congenital form of this disease is often found in association with other symptoms like intellectual delay, epilepsy, or complex deformations. Individuals with this condition have been documented since the Middle Ages, and unfortunately, they have been exploited for their startling appearances. For example, Julia Pastrana, an indigenous Mexican woman born in the 1830s, was one of the most famous public figures with hypertrichosis. During her life, she was exhibited in an American circus as Mexico's monkey woman, and after her death, her embalmed body continued to be showcased until she was finally laid to rest in 2013. Holy crap. That is frightening. And we will post pictures of some of these conditions on our Instagram. Vampire disease, or prophyria, which we spoke about earlier, refers to a group of disorders that result from a natural buildup of chemicals that produce porphyrin, a compound essential for the function of hemoglobin in your blood, according to the Mayo Clinic. The condition is usually inherited, and symptoms can range largely dependent on the severity of the disease. There are two forms of porphyria, acute, which mainly affects the nervous system, and cutaneous, which mainly affects the skin. The disease is known as vampire disease because many of the symptoms fit in line with the legend of the vampire. For example, individuals with this condition have skin that is sensitive to sunlight, urine which is reddish to purple in color, and gums that shrink back in the head, making the teeth more prominent and to appear like fangs. The next on this list is walking corpse disease. Yet another spooky yet real disease is Cotard syndrome, also known as walking corpse disease. And I believe we did this on an earlier episode of the show as well. Cotard syndrome, also known as walking corpse disease, is a mental condition where individuals are convinced they are actually dead. This condition is extremely rare, but individuals may also believe they are missing several body parts. According to Psychology Today, one young woman with Cotard syndrome was so convinced she did not have body parts that she didn't see the need to eat and soon died of starvation. Freaky. And the last article that I have is called Real Life Werewolves Psychiatry Reexamines the Rare Delusion. And I got this article from Life livescience.com and it's written by Bahar Golapur and it came out in 2014. They grunt, claw, and feel their body is covered with hair and their nails are elongated. Some people strongly believe they're in the process of metamorphosis into a wolf. There have been 13 cases reported of such people since 1850, one psychiatrist found. 
Intrigued by treating a patient who thought he was a werewolf, Dr. Jan Dirk Blom, an associate professor of psychiatry at the University of Groningen, Groningen in the Netherlands, mined the archives of psychiatry to find out how common this particular condition was. Blom found that since 1850, there have been 56 original case descriptions of people who believed they were actually metamorphosizing into an animal. Among them, 13 reports met the criteria for clinical lycanthropy, the medical term for having delusions of being able to turn into a wolf. The adjective clinical is used to emphasize the condition doesn't mean actual lycanthropy or the ability to metamorphose physically into a wolf. The remaining cases were variants of the condition where patients had delusional convictions about being a dog, a bow snake, a frog, or a bee, according to the study published in the March issue of the Journal of History of Psychiatry. He says, I had expected to find more cases because in textbooks, the condition is mentioned quite often, Blom said. But such a low number of clinical cases reported in over 150 years suggest the condition may be even rarer than previously thought, Blom said. Doctors should take heed not to cry wolf too often, he says, almost in joking. The wolf in the mirror. The idea of shape-shifting humans has been around since ancient times and remains an evocative theme even today. But less attention has been given to clinical lycanthropy, a condition, although rare, that does actually occur. In clinical practice, many cases are missed because mental health professionals are insufficiently aware of the existence and the uniqueness of this particular disorder. The condition is generally thought to be an unusual expression of another disorder, like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or even severe depression. Indeed, when they were reviewing 56 cases of delusional metamorphosis into an animal, Blom found that 25% of the patients were diagnosed with schizophrenia, 23% with psychotic depression, and about 20% of these people had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Among the patients, 34 were men, 22 were women, and their symptoms lasted anywhere from a single hour to decades. Can you imagine having these sort of symptoms for decades? What that would do to you and where you would be in society if you had delusions like that? The first case report on clinical lycanthropy was published in 1852 and described a man being admitted to an asylum in Nancy, France, who was convinced he had turned into a wolf. To demonstrate this, Blom explained, the man parted his lips with his fingers to show his alleged wolf's teeth and complained that he had cloven feet with a, and a body covered with long hair. He said that he only wanted to eat raw meat, and when it was given to him, he refused it because it was not rotten enough. Other patients in the reports had similar illusions about changes in their appearance, and one saw the head of a wolf when looking at himself in the mirror. Another was convinced that bones in her body had been replaced by a pig's and one felt claws growing in her feet. Yikes. The brain that sees a wolf. Although for millennia, explanations for lycanthropy were metaphysical, eventually modern science raised the idea that brain diseases caused this condition. 
Over the past decade, various brain imaging studies have pointed to specific brain areas that appear to be essential for creating the sense of physical existence and perceiving our body schema, Blom says. These brain regions include areas of the brain's cortex, which is the outer layer that is responsible for movement and sensation. We know that neural circuits in the brain involving premotor and sensory cortical areas and probably various subcortical areas as well are essential to creating our body schema, Blom said. In the cases Blom reviewed, patients perceived changes in their own physical appearance. For example, some thought their mouths and teeth had changed shape or their chest had broadened. Some experienced their body shrinking and some felt burning sensations in the belly and thighs. It is possible that some patients that in some patients, these delusions originated from problems in related brain regions, which profoundly changed the individual's sense of physical identity. Now, a forgotten diagnosis, this problem was called coenastopiopathy by French neurologist in 1905. And I apologize if I freaking slaughtered that word. It was very challenging. Today, psychiatrists can use EEGs or other brain imaging techniques to look for abnormalities in brain areas that give rise to the body scheme and sense of self. Still, because clinical lycanthropy tends to occur with other major psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia, depression, and bipolar disorder, the best practice would be to treat the underlying disorder, he says. Very, very interesting there are a lot of these patients around the world over the years, but it still seems to be something that is a lot more rare than many other conditions. Very, very interesting. This is the point in the show, though, where we say so long, farewell. We hope that you've enjoyed our Halloween episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Send us an email if you'd like to chat with us, correct us, give us some insight if you've seen, heard, or experienced any of the conditions that we talked about on our special Halloween episodes. We'd love to hear from you as well. We're at the Hypoalma Podcast at gmail.com. I will drop that into the show notes. And please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye.